Welcome to our Fire Away Sunday. If you're visiting with us, just so you know, this is going to be a little bit different what we're doing this morning. Um, we have had the opportunity to enter, just submit questions via our, our webpage for the last month, and we're supposed to address them this morning. Uh, let me mention just a couple things about that. First of all, we got in over 30 questions, and we got in some whoppers. So that's, that's fantastic. Now, we're not going to be able to deal with them all today. So I took a handful. I left the whoppers in my office. Uh, now, now we'll, we'll, we'll deal with some whoppers this morning as well. Um, but please know, if your question is not answered, uh, we will hopefully do this again maybe sometime, and we'll be able to bring that out because there's some that are so good that we just need to hear. Um, also know that that which makes a question good often in our culture is its controversialness. And so uh, certainly I have this feeling that everybody will not be walking out here today saying, oh, I agree with him 100%. And so uh, please let's remember that... Uh, our fundamentals are what hold us together. Secondary issues are, are okay. I am not the, I don't consider myself the bastion of omniscience. And so I'm going to do the best I can to represent God's word. I'm not trying to seek a political middle ground somewhere. Uh, what God's word says. And then we will uh, take it from there. All right. Let's, let's look and see what the, what the questions are. Again, some really, really good questions. Um, first question. We're going to start right at the beginning. We're going to start with Genesis. First question, how should a Christian view scientific claims about the earth being billions of years old? You know, there, is, uh, there was a time uh, where evolution was, was directly associated with an old earth theory and creationism was directly associated with a young earth theory. Uh, that's not so much so anymore. I see two issues here. Now, now please hear all I'm saying before you determine you're going to email me on this one. Um, <laughs> There are creationists who hold to a young earth theory. The earth's about 10,000 years old. There are creationists who hold to, an, and that's, you know, the, the, the young earth is Ken Ham and the creation research guys. Uh, there are Christians that hold to an old earth theory, that the uh, universe is 13.7 billion and the earth is 4.5 billion years old. Um, Hugh Ross, uh, John Soilammer, John Piper's in this category. Uh, if someone walks in my office about the, concerned with the age of the earth, I'm at a point these days where that's not an issue for me. Just whatever is fine. Now, the evolution side, and that's another issue. Because you can be a creationist and hold to the old earth thing. So I'm not worried about that. But let's talk about the evolution thing for just, just a moment. Again, please know I'm not a, a physicist, an astrophysicist, a, a botanist, a, a geologist, an anthropologist, a chemist, a, w- w- any of the scientific hard science disciplines. That's not my, my training, my education. And so I will have to answer this from hopefully a Bible's perspective, a biblicist perspective. Just so you know, I don't, don't know enough about all the scientific arguments. But as far as macroevolution, the thought that all of life came from one single cell in the primordial soup in the methane gas, and it, all of us, everything, it comes from that. I believe that's incompatible with scripture. That is incompatible with science to my understanding. It's incompatible with, with logic. There are winds of change among the atheistic macroevolutionists today because of some of the concerns and issues with this, with this theory. And please, we reminded, right? It's just a theory. There's no law of science on this one. Um, the reason why we're opposed to it, I believe, biblically, is for multiple r- r- reasons, but primarily. It's not, in my mind, this important is the, the 
Integrity of the word of God on the origins, very important. But I believe more important is this argument that is out there among the theologians today on the historical Adam. Because an evolutionary model does not allow for a historical Adam. And that's right up against the word of God. Genesis 2-7, right? Where God says that he's going to make man out of the dust of the earth. And that the Lord God breathed into the man the breath of life. Now this was not... You know, man was just kind of standing there, zombie-ish, and then God kind of did mouth-to-mouth on him, and suddenly he came alive. That's not what it's referring to, because all of the other creatures were living. They were alive at this point. This talks about something different. This is Genesis 1.26, where he says, God's talking among himself in his trinity, and he says, let us make man in our image. There is a special endowment upon man. He's in God's image, not because he's the most intelligent, whether he is or not, I, I don't know. But uh, because he is endowed with something of God's image, we're not going to get into that right now, but know where this ends up going is into throughout the rest of Scripture, where the Scripture authors all believe in a historical Adam, Luke 3, First and Second Corinthians, Paul refers to this. Jesus himself, Matthew 19, he's talking to these guys and he says, haven't you read? In the beginning, God created them, male and female. Jesus believed in historical Adam. And this is why this is important for us. Romans 5, Paul's making this argument. And he's taking the first Adam, and he's going to juxtapose him right next to the second Adam, which is Jesus. And he says, according to this first Adam, through one man, sin entered the world. And death by sin. And so death passed upon all mankind, spiritual death, because all have sinned. And then he says, but through the second Adam, through Jesus... His righteousness, because he lived a righteous life, it allows his righteousness to be passed upon all man as well. Now, the way the syntax is, one of them can't be a metaphor, while the second one, historical. Either the first Adam is a metaphor, and so is the second, there was really no Jesus. Or uh, there really was a Jesus, and therefore there really was an Adam. This is where it, it really gets down to it. If there's no historical Adam, you know what? There's no created in the image of God. There's no fall. There's no original sin. There's no depravity. There's no redemption. This idea of, of, of no historical Adam really just under takes the, 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 cuts the knees out of the whole Bible. It just underestimates everything. It's not just the literalness of the scripture on the origins of life, which is an important issue. But suddenly there's no redemption. All of everything scripture, Christianity is based on, is gone. That's why we reject. Now some will say, well, you know, Genesis 1 and 2 are, are in poetical, the written Hebrew poetry. That's bogus. That's just bogus. I remember sitting in my, my Genesis class. My teacher was trained at one of the most, PhD, one of the most liberal Hebrew universities specializing in Hebrew. Hebrew Union University. There's four in the country. They trained uh, reformed Jewish rabbis. He was trained there in um, his, his Hebrew. And I asked him, I said, is there anything in the text that makes you think that it's poetry? If you looked at your Bible today, modern translation, you would find a goofy kind of indenting. And the translators put that in there to let us know that it's poetry. But when I asked this guy, he said, I think he wanted to say otherwise, but he was honest enough. He said, there's nothing in the, in the grammar. There's nothing in the, in the context. There's nothing in the way it's written to make us think that it's Hebrew poetry. If it's Hebrew poetry, it's unlike any we've ever seen before. Uh, at best, it's loose, it's loose prose. So if someone comes to my office, they're all upset about the age of the earth, I'm... That's not an issue for me as much as 
let's look at the evolution issue. Let's talk, let's talk about that. Maybe I'm raising more questions than answering. That's okay. Next time we do one of these, you can answer some more. All right, question two. Uh, if a gay person accepts Christ as their Savior, but does not change their lifestyle, is their salvation for that person basically kind of practicing homosexual get into heaven? I thought you were dealing with, with, with biggies. Because this lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender issue is the issue, at least in the United States, specifically in the church today. A huge, huge issue. And because this is such an emotionally charged issue, I'm going to answer this question, best of my knowledge, but I want to do it by laying the homosexual thing aside for just a second. If someone had asked, is this uh, a legitimate lifestyle, it's another question, they didn't ask that. Uh, let me give you a scenario. Uh, this man struggles with telling the truth. He's just a straight-up liar. Maybe the way he was raised, who knows. We can look at his background and, and whatever else, but he's, he's, he's a liar. He, there's no concept of truth in him. Then he comes to know Christ, but he's not interested in changing. Everything out of his mouth is going to continue to be lying. Now, he knows, and we show him God's word. Lie not to one another, and, and you know, one of the, one of the commandments is, is don't uh, give false testimony about somebody else. And, and we show him Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And he says, tough. I don't really care. I'm going to continue to practice my life the way I do. Let me ask, can that person get in heaven? How about somebody who, who uh, comes to know Christ? Maybe this person was just a lust monger. They had their own fantasy world vacations all the time that they took, but they come to know Christ. They know what God's word says about this, and they say, tough, I'm not interested in changing. I'm going to continue to go on these vacations on a regular basis. Can this person get into heaven? How about somebody who, you know, pick a sin? They're into gossip. Huge. Come to know Christ. They're not interested in changing whatsoever. Or name your sin. They're, they're living with their boyfriend. They come to know Christ, but they're still, they know what he says, but tough. They're still going to do it anyway. Can they get in heaven? Let me show, show this verse. This is an interesting verse. And notice the stuff that Paul links together. He says, don't you know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Can you get into heaven if you come to know Christ and you just don't really give a rip about what he says? Well, no. Because Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. Now, let me clarify this a little bit. Someone is they're, they're a liar person. They come to know Christ. And, and they're, they're understanding his word, and they are trying to be truthful. And they're growing. They're changing. But once in a while, still the lie slips up. Can this person get in heaven? How about the person, and in, 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 they're a, a lust monger, but they come to know Christ, and they're trying hard to purify their mind, and they've got, they got protection on their computer, and they're staying away from different things, and, and they're working hard, but still once in a while the thoughts creep into their mind, and they entertain them. But then when they do, they ask forgiveness. And, Can that person get in heaven? How about the person who's got this gossip thing going, and they come to know Christ, and then they're really working to not be this way, but still once in a while they fall. Uh, can they get to heaven? How about the homosexual person, they come to know Christ... And now they're recognizing, you know what, Lord, I just want to do this right. I'm trying to be pure and I'm with, but still once in a while they'll fall. Can they get in heaven? Absolutely. John is writing, chapter 2, 1 John, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you in order that you may not sin. But if anyone does, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 
1 John 1, 9. It's because he says, if we confess our sins, he's talking to Christians. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So uh, any sin where someone is, is following after, quote-unquote following after Christ, but they're not interested in following after Christ, they're going to do their own thing anyway, I would say they're not following after, after Christ. I don't know if that helps, helps or not. Question three. <laughs> Again, we're using all the, starting with all the white ones here, right? Why did God order the killing of innocent women and children in the Old Testament? How do we square that with his being a loving and good God? Oh, man. Um, there's probably nothing that we can say that's going to satisfy this one. Okay? There's nothing that we can say that we're going to go, oh, sure, okay, kill them, that's fine. We're not going to ever get to that point. But there are some things that probably need to be said that are factors that we just need to be thinking about as we deal with this one. This is a big one. This is a real big one. But let's just, let's just notice some of the factors. Let's just understand those as we wrestle with this. First one, it's the first factor. This was not a common deal. First, next screen. Yeah, this was not common. We think, oh, this happened all over the place in the Old Testament. No, 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 no. This was their policy when they, when they took over Canaan, the Holy Land. This was a kind of a Joshua thing. When they took over the Holy Land, they were commanded to annihilate all the peoples. Deuteronomy 7, though, lets us know that this is not the, their, their standard policy for treating foreigners. They're to be kind, all kinds of commands on being kind to foreigners. They're, they're not supposed to treat the Egyptians this way, or the Moabites, or the Edomites, or the Ammonites this way. Not at all. Just the folk in Canaan. I'm not saying this, this is not, doesn't solve it, but it just helps us give us a little framework. Number two. Uh, there was an issue of corporate solidarity. Let me tell you what I mean by this, and this is very difficult for us Westerners to get a handle on. Because in the United States especially, we're a bunch of individuals. I mean, every single one of us, right, can have our own God, our own religion, or lack thereof. We can believe anything we want about government or uh, philosophy or values. We can, as long as we're within the scope of the law, we can believe outside that if we want. But, but we, we are just radically individualistic. But many cultures, even today, do not hold to that. And they certainly didn't back here to think what you see in the, the news. Say, in a radical Islamic guy blows up uh, a handful of Americans. He's not seeing them as children and women. And he's seeing them as Americans. They are Americans first. Everything else is secondary. They represent our enemy. This was the mindset here. When, when the Israelites went in, they saw the Amorites... The Amorites were, had, were their sworn enemy. The Amorites, if they had a sword, their policy was to kill the Israelites. This was their, they, were, they were at war with each other. They weren't just a bunch of neutrally kind, peace-loving type folk. That's not the, the way it, it operated. There was this understanding of corporate solidarity. Number three, um, archaeology lets us know that these nations, and again, this doesn't solve anything, but it's good to keep in mind, these nations in Canaan were exceedingly wicked. This was not like the Cleavers just hanging out, you know, the families at the, at the park one day playing Frisbee and just having a picnic and then the mean old Israelites coming in clobber them. They are uh, co- incorporating child sacrifice. They are treating their women and their children and their elderly and their disabled in incredibly horrific ways. This is, this is just not a good place to live. So just this was a very wicked place. And because of that... This was judgment for their sin. Let me point out this text. This is a great verse. It doesn't get, get uh, addressed often. But in Genesis chapter 15, 
Genesis 15. Sorry, I should have this marked out. God's talking to Jacob. I don't know if you remember the story. Joseph is already down in, in Egypt, and he's coming, and he's going to get Jacob, and Jacob is going to go down. Israel is probably like 70 people strong. They're going to go down and hang out in Egypt. We know they're going to hang out there for 400 years. Jacob, I'm not so sure, knew this exactly, but God told him right here. Jacob's still trying to figure out, should I go? And God says, go. And God says this. He says, you're going to stay there, and you're going to stay there for quite some time. Verse 16, he says, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. And this is why. You ever think why the Israelites needed to hang out in Egypt for 400 years? Maybe just so they could get big enough, so they could take on other people? That's not the reason. This is the reason why God said, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. God says, the reason why we're not taking over Canaan right now, because I don't need 80 gazillion people to do that. I can do this with just a few. It's not a big issue for me. It's because this is going to be judgment on sin, and their sin has not reached that point. They're not deserving it yet. Um, This would not be the first time that God did this. Of course, Noah's flood. The whole world, men, women, children, were wiped out, except for those on the boat. This is going to happen at the end of the age, right? Everybody who's not in a relationship with Christ is going to be cast into eternal hell. Judgment is is a part of it. And what's happening here is a judgment on on these folk. It's a judgment... For sin. Next point. The example of Rahab. Remember this? This, this lets us know that there's hope. When the, the, the spies went into the land getting ready to take on Canaan, and Rahab, who's not Jewish, had a faith in God, and she broke the mold. Because corporate solidarity, you don't break away from what your people are saying is right and true. But she did. And she placed her faith in God. God spared her. I believe the, the Gibeonites, even though they used a deceptive manner to get there, I believe that same sort of thing. The God's letting us know that when people repent, he relents. That was still available. Well, folk just didn't contemplate even doing that, breaking out of the corporate solidarity mode. And then finally, God does not play favorites. Please know, please, please, please know that God raised up, according to his, his word, this is what he did, the Assyrians to take a sword against the Israelites. According to Scripture, God raised up the Babylonians with their sword to come against the Israelites and wholesale massacre in many ways. Don't just think, oh, God's taking care of his people and everybody else gets it. He lets them know. He lets them know ahead of time in Deuteronomy. If you're not following me, the judgment that's going to happen to the other nations will happen to you as well. What's this should do for us? It doesn't answer everything, I know. But what it can do for us is to remind us that there is a judgment on sin. Sin is a terrible, terrible, much worse deal than we could ever imagine. There's no little white sins in God's eyes. Sin is, is horrific and requires a, a judgment. Um, let's go to the next. Let's go to the next one. Oh, it's a great question. Can anybody be saved from hell, judgment, and the wrath of God without repentance? Basically, is repentance necessary for salvation? If yes, why is this not preached in our church? Instead, we use words like Jesus wants to have a relationship with you, on and on and on, surrender to Christ. Two questions, right? Is repentance necessary? And if it is, how come we don't preach it? We'll take them in that order. Is it necessary? Absolutely. It's necessary. No two ways about it. What is repentance? We've got to nail that. The word is metanauo in Greek. Two words. Meta, which means change. And na'u'o, which means mind. So what repentance is, is the change 
of mind. It's this, this goes back to our earlier question. The person asked about, can you be living in sin and still get to heaven one day? What repentance is, is repentance is not, repentance is not just raising your hand or saying a prayer or coming forward. It's getting to a place where you say, you know what? I have been my own God. I have been leading my own life. My whole life has all been about me. I'm the one that's making decisions based on what I want to do and what's best for me. It's me, me, me. Coming to a realization, there is a creator, God. I'm not it. And I was made to be in submission to him, to worship him, inviting uh, God to be a part of your life. Now, we can't do this without Christ, of course. That's what the cross was about. That's why Jesus died, so that we can worship our Father in spirit and in truth. By the way, I'm looking forward to the next week's series as we start on, on worship. So someone who, who, who is claiming to know Christ, but they're just going to live however they want, are they, if, if you're not following Christ, you're not following Christ. If, in fact, we've preached an easy believism that says there's this magic incantation, you can pray and it will be your fire insurance, it's just not. It's just not there. And if you're banking on that, you're, you're, in, you're in trouble. By, that's why Jesus can say by their fruits, you're going to know them. Because if there is an internal change, you know what? There's going to be some sort of external change. Um, why we don't always use the word repentance in our gospel presentation? This is why. The majority of the time, the Bible does not. John 3.16 God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. John 1.12 But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus said that unless you believe that I am he, you shall surely die in your sins. John 20 lets us know um, Jesus did many other things that are not written in this book, but these are written in order that you might believe and that in believing, you might have life in his name. If you believe in the Son, you have life. If you don't believe, you don't have life. Uh, it's all over the place. Now, we have to keep in mind that the word believe, there is an, an element of repentance inferred in the word. If I was to, to wake up one night and say, you know, I believe my house is on fire and then go back to bed, I, I probably don't really believe it, do I? Now, if I really believed it, what would I do? I would grab my wife and my kids and the dog and the baseball card collection, whatever, and call 911 on my way out. And I'm now you'd say, oh, yeah, I guess he really believes it. Uh, James lets us know that the demons know that Jesus died and rose. It's, belief isn't adhering to facts. It, it's, it's living those out. It's, it's living your life as if those are true. He really is my Lord. That's really, really correct. That's what it's about. So is, is repentance necessarily? Yes, it is. But the word is not always used in the gospel presentations. Uh, Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Revelation 3.20 Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and sup with him. The, the gospel presentation is often presented in the form of relationship. It is Relationship. And so, though we may not always say the word repentance, I believe the words like surrender are that. Uh, Romans 10, 9 and 10. I think we've got that the next slide. Yes. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, that's the repentance part, I believe. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Uh, scripture's real, real clear on that. The goal, I think, in Scripture... In each one of the places where the gospel is presented, if it's not inferred in the word, it's inferred if not directly stated in the context. Uh, but the thought is that they will continue on, they will continue under the teachings, and this idea of repentance will be unpacked as they go.
Next question. Good question. All, all these are good questions. When I felt the Holy Spirit draw me to, the, to ask the Lord to be my master um, at an evangelistic meeting, I responded to the invitation to come forward without hesitation. At FEC, there have been messages that I felt would have resulted in many coming forward if the invitation was extended. Why don't we do this? You know, I, I, this is one of the questions that I receive often. Um, when I was eight in Awana, let me give you some background, there was an altar call. I didn't go forward. I was too scared. But I did go home on top of my bunk bed, and that was my altar. And I, I laid it out to Christ. I, I trust in Christ. When I was 12 at a camp meeting, altar call, I was the first one down. Uh, the rest of the camp followed suit. They just liked to follow me, I guess. But we were all down there. We were all, we're all down there. All right. So I have, I, I've, 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 I've been a part of that. It's been very meaningful in my own life. But let me give you a little background on the altar call itself. It was invented in the 18, mid-1800s by a guy by the name of Charles Finney. Second great awakening in our country. Until that point in history, the church had never seen an altar call. Which is fascinating when you think of the fact that the church, when Jesus left, was just a handful of people. But by the time, 33 AD, 310 rolls around, when Constantine takes over, uh, this, this small group of people had turned into the majority of the Roman Empire. The majority of the, have no altar calls. As a matter of fact, during this time, you get killed if you accept Christ in many, many area, eras and, and places of it. I mean, it, it was very intense. And still, the church exploded. During the Reformation, uh, the great reformers, there was no altar calls, and yet the, the church uh, exploded exponentially. Uh, first great awakening, it was 1730s and 40s in, in our country, the colonies. This is, this is amazing history, because it started with this guy named Jonathan Edward in Northampton, Massachusetts. Uh, Jonathan Edwards was a uh, high Calvinist. So when he preached, it's very interesting, his view of salvation, our evangelism, very interesting. When they would, the high Calvinist pastors, and there were a lot of them at that point in history, would counsel, they called it counseling, but really their counseling wasn't talking about your marriage and your kids. It was talking about, uh, do you want to, how can you come to know Christ? And people would come, talk to him and say, I think I would like to become a Christian. And he would sit back and say, I don't think so. And say, well, what do you mean? Wait, 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 what are you talking about? And he said, well, I, I don't know. And they said, well, no, I, I want to accept Christ. And he would say, it's not about your wanting to accept Christ. It's, it's, did he call you? And I'm not so sure he has. And they're like, well, well how, do you, how do you make sure? And he said, well, go home. Pray about it for a while. Beseech him. Ask him to see what happens. And if he calls you, he does. Now, this sounds like, kind of like anti-evangelism, doesn't it? And in the spirit, the first great awakening hits the colonies. And major, major revival breaks out. And everybody was in a high... Calvinist who followed Edwards, but, but huge, huge impact. Um, where I am, I am at with this, because like I mentioned, at camp, when I went forward, the whole camp, all the kids came forward. I know many of them, vast majority of them are not living for the Lord today. Uh, my fear often with altar calls, first of all, it's not biblical, it's not unbiblical. Make sure I'm not, I'm not saying that they're unbiblical. I've done some since I've been here, I'll, I'll do some more, I'm sure. But it's not commanded, and we see no example for it. Often, an altar call, it relies on the power of emotion and uh, rhetorical persuasion. If I give the right illustrations and stories and tug your heart, you know, we can get the, we play the, the music at the right time. We can just really get the emotional thing rolling. Sometimes it's often involved with a, a, 
uh, social pressure. Someone really needs me to go. I want to go. Someone needs to see me. With all of those issues and understanding the history, um, this is why I, I choose often to not go that route. Instead, what we do is we say where we, what we've chosen. One of the many ways is there's a card in the pew, yes card. If this is where you're at, check it, bring it, give it to the table, and they've got a Bible They've got a reading plan of God's word. They've got some next steps material, uh, that sort of deal. Now, someone may ask, aren't we supposed to be public in our, in our relationship with Christ? Didn't he say, unless you confess me before men, I will not confess you before my Father in heaven. Yes, that's why he invented baptism, for that very purpose, for that reason, that we can go public. So that's why we don't, am I, well, I do one on a, yes, if the Spirit says move, we're going we're gonna to do it. But... Um, that's where, I, that's where I'm at with that. Maybe wrong. We'll see. I'm open to, to, to grow and change, and the Lord can move me. Um, this, is, this is a great question. This was actually, this one here was my most difficult question this week. No question, no, no question about it. This is the most difficult question. How does our spirit differ from our soul? Bottom line is, I don't know. If you read an individual... There's many out there who have their opinions on this. You'll come away saying, I got it down, I understand. But if you read many individuals, and you, you do a word study, and all of what Scripture says in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the differentiations between soul and spirit in the Old, soul and spirit in the New, and you, you cross-reference, you're going to come away confused. Because the, the soul, you know, Ezekiel says, the soul that sins, it will die. And yet, James lets us know that you can receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Uh, the spirit is, is, is also eternal. We find in Ecclesiastes 12.7, the spirit is born again. Both the soul and the spirit are, are equated with emotion, with eternality. Um, Isaiah is, is praying and, and passionate for the Lord. And he says, um, my soul yearns for you in the night. In the morning, my spirit longs for you. Uh, way the poetry works. He's equating the two. Sometimes the two are used interchangeably. Uh, best we can say, best I can say, I, I know in the church there are two arguments, there's two camps, there's dichotomists, they believe man is material and immaterial. And there are the trichotomists, they believe man is body, soul, and spirit. I lean, I'm not going to the wall for this one, but I lean in the dichotomist camp. That's where I'm, that's where I'm at. I think that's what scripture would lean to. I don't know if that's helpful or not, but it is what it is. Okay. Um, a great, this is a great question. That's, didn't I say that about all of them? Yes, okay. All right, let's keep going. Um, does the CNA believe that we as Christians should be legislating our religious beliefs into the laws of the land? I wish the question stopped there. That would be real easy. Uh, CNA doesn't take a stance on this. Do whatever you want to do. Okay. <laughs> but then they continue on. Don't we actually harm our status as caring church people, helping others when we attempt to enact legislation that sometimes tramples on others' varying faiths, backgrounds, etc.? All right. In the scripture, it doesn't say a whole lot about this. And there's, there's, there's a couple reasons. One is because the governance structure in the Old Testament and the New Testament was nothing like we experience in the United States today. In the Old Testament, God made the law. People didn't lobby. People didn't decide. There was no legislator trying to figure out, okay, what kind of laws do we need? And God made it, and you obeyed it. That's the way it was. Theocracy of Israel. Basically, the same thing happens in the New Testament, except for now it's Roman Empire that makes the law. The people didn't all get together and decide what should the law be. Rome made it. The Rome Senate came up with it. And the, the common person just obeyed it. There was not even a thought that I could influence the law system. What we do see in the New Testament is the Apostle Paul 
claiming one of the rights he had as a Roman citizen. Acts 25, he's standing before Festus, uh, Festus, Roman emperor, a Roman, uh, procurator uh, a court and Festus is under some pressure by the Jews who are saying send him back to, to Jerusalem and he knows and everybody knows and Paul knows that when he goes back to Jerusalem they're going to have a kangaroo court and kill him the same way they did Jesus and so Paul stands up Festus says you want to go back to Jerusalem Paul he said very legal official proclamation he says I am standing in Caesar's court where I ought to be and then he says if I've done anything deserving of death I'll take it but if not no way and he says, I, I, I appeal to Caesar. And Festus, because Paul was a Roman citizen, said all he could say is, you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar, you shall go. Paul used the legal citizen rights he had to get there. Now, in our country, we live in a democracy. It is not just a right we have to be involved in the process. The government would say it is a responsibility we have to be in the process. Um, the, the, the bottom line is the way it works is, is I'm trying to get something accomplished, some law in, and this guy over here is as well. And if he gets more votes than me, I got to submit to his way. And if I get more votes than him, he's got to submit to my way. Do I have an agenda? Yes, absolutely. Does he have an agenda? Yes, absolutely. To think that Christians have an agenda, but they don't is crazy. Everybody's got an agenda, whether it's communism or, or hedonism or materialism. Everybody's got their, their, their religion that they are trying to have enacted in one level or another in the system. Listen, you can live... Would you, if you lived in a land that said you cannot have a Bible or read it, would you read it anyway? If you lived in a land... We know people who have to do this. If you lived in a land where they said you cannot share your faith... Would you do it anyway? Right now, we live in a land where the government says, you guys choose. You, what, do you, what do you want us to do? What do you want it to be? And so I, I have no problem with Christians, individual Christians who are involved in uh, politics or voting. or what. That, that, wonderful, that's fine. Now, let me throw three caveats on that thing. Three defining comments. One is, individual Christians, yes. Corporate body of Christ, church, No. Uh, God has given us, Jesus has given us marching orders. Uh, included in that are not political activism. I, 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 don't, I don't believe. Uh, number, number two, we always respond in everything we do, whether it's politics or something else. We have to respond in a high ethical manner. Often politics can really get into a, a uh, you know, and justify the means kind of thing. And, and Kindness towards those on the other side of the fence, love for those on the other side of the fence, care, respect, all of those kind of things have to permeate what we do. They have to. Uh, third thing, uh, legislation has never changed anybody's eternal destiny, and we just got to keep in mind part of our makeup is much easier for us to be involved in politics than it is for us to be involved in the primary thing Christ has called us to do, which is make disciples. It's just easier to do this than to try to share my faith. But yet sharing our faith is going to be the only thing, reason why I believe we're still here on earth, but also the only thing that's going to change eternal destiny. If this one over here trumps this, then it has to go. So, uh, yes, we can, we can be, I believe we can be involved biblically. Unless the scripture says we can't, with something we can do. All right. Uh, question eight. What if I did some bad things to people in college 20 to 30 years ago, 
but never asked for their forgiveness and don't even know where they live now. I forgive myself, but have never asked their forgiveness. Does that matter? That's a great question. Yeah, they're all good. Um, Two things. First of all, sometimes we can't ask forgiveness, right? The person that we had issues with has died, and we we just can't. And you find a lot of that kind of thing with people who've had a parent die and now they're trying to grapple with this unresolved issue going on. Um, maybe the, the, the company that we worked with and somehow we ripped them off, whatever, now they're gone. They're, they went under probably because we ripped them off. And, and they're, they're, they're all done and, and we can't go back and fix it. Maybe it's something where you had a, and a you know, just, just a horrific scenario. You had a past uh, girlfriend, guys, and, and you, you, you lived with her back when you were in college and you forced uh, ab- abortions and drug use, all kinds of bad things going on. And since then, you've, you've come to know Christ and you've cleaned up. Uh, and so is she, and she's living in Cleveland now, and she's got a great marriage, it seems, and she's got four kids, and she's head of the PTA. Is it right and wise to walk into that and let all these people, who may not even, kids and husband may not even know her past, and to bring up, is that the right, that's not the right thing to do. Often in Scripture, uh, the, the issue primary issue, you know what, the primary issue is not necessarily me asking their uh, forgiveness. That, that's, that is an issue, but that's not the primary one. In Scripture, the primary one, believe it or not, is restitution. And so, yeah, if I've ripped somebody off and I've cost them, then it's going to be a little bit more than words. I have to pay to help to repay what I have broken what I, as much as I, I can. Some things I know we can't do that. But even beyond that, the number one issue is not even did you forgive yourself or did you ask them forgiveness, but your relationship with God. We know the story of David and Bathsheba, right? Incredible story. I mean, you know this, right? He, he has your, after he has an affair with, with Bathsheba, he then kills her husband. He has him killed. Uh, then he ends up marrying her. He's ripped off the uh, uh, Israelites because he's their king. He's violated their, their trust. He's, he's coveted. He's, he's done all kinds of horrific things, right? He's, he's like offended everybody. He's sinned against them all. And yet when he, when he comes to with this, when he wises up, he writes Psalm 51. Psalm 51, amazing psalm. He says in it, he's praying to God, he says, Against you, you only have I sinned. And we're going, ah, what are you talking about? You've said about everybody. What do you mean picking out just only God? On one sense, he's very correct, is he not? I mean, who made the rules? Who said don't commit adultery and don't kill and don't covet? This is, this is, who, don't bear false testimony. Broke that one too. Who said all this? This is God. And David's recognizing that the lawgiver, these laws were not separate from God. They are part of who God is. That's why they are the law. And so when you break them, you're defying God straight up. The most important thing in our past, and we do have issues, and we need to take care of them as much as we can, but but it's got to start, I think, by coming to God in confession and saying, God, I've hurt other people. I'm sorry. But more than anybody else, I've hurt you. And I've been living opposite of you. That's where it's got to begin. And so I would encourage, uh, we need to forgive others, perhaps forgive ourselves, but beyond all of it, we need to for- ask God's forgiveness and make sure our relationship with him is straight. And of course, that is why he sent Jesus. Again, let me just make this real, real clear with that repentance question. Salvation is not, I've got my 401k, I've got my health club membership, 
and I got Jesus just in case when I died, this thing is real, I'm, I'm covered. It's not that. It, it's, it's that repenting. It's that coming to him in worship. It's having him first and foremost in my life. And the only way we can get there because of our sin is through Christ. That's where it's at. So that's, that's how that works together. Let's deal with one last question. And I feel bad because I've got a couple of others here that are, are biggies. Uh, but if we do this again, we'll get back to it. The predestination one. We won't deal with that one right now. But let me end with this one. Uh, let me end with this one. And this is, this is, this is, because this is a great question. Someone asked me earlier after the first service, they said, man, you, you dropped the ball by not doing the predestination question. Ah, okay. Do you think they struggled with that one more or this one more? That you think, what, what, what do we struggle with more? And they said, oh, well, of course we struggle with this one more. Okay, good. Then that's one we're going to answer. All right. Someone asked, why should we memorize scripture? Now, I came across something from John Piper several years ago. Fantastic. We all know we should. We don't always know why. Piper. It says, one. It says, memorization makes meditation possible when you don't have the Bible in front of you. You know, we have our quiet time. That's, that's a wonderful deal. But this is interesting. In Scripture, we're not commanded all that often to read it. Do you know that? We are. But mostly, we're commanded to meditate on it. It's in the meditation that transforms us. And when, if, if you've incorporated that into memory, you know what? You can meditate on it while you're shaving. You can meditate on it while you're driving down the street. You can meditate it when you're at your machine working. You can meditate at all kinds of different times. You can keep God's word rolling through. But if you're just relying on that, that few moments when I read it, you're really limiting yourself. So that's why we memorize. We memorize because it strengthens our faith. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You want strong faith and you will go ahead and put God's word into your mind on a regular basis. It transforms our mind according to Romans 12. Memorization shapes the way I view the world by conforming my heart to his. This is incredible. We think sometimes we're, we're, not, we're, not, we're not God. But we're, we're not really all that bad. According to scripture, we're really, really bad. If you're really, really good, that's what you're thinking. That's one of the places where you're really, really bad. Read Romans 3. We are all a mess. God says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. They're far beyond. They're way. The gap is huge. And the way we begin to think his thoughts is not, well, let me just get my head straight and then I'll be able to think his thoughts. It's through his word. You you know as well as I do. If you let something soak in uh, uh, a marinade for two minutes or you let it soak for two days, the thing that's been sitting there for two days is going to taste like it a lot more. If God's word is in us and we're meditating on it and it's just part of our life, we're going to reflect it a lot more than if we just get our little uh, daily bread zap once in a while. Uh, Number four, memorization helps us overcome temptation. This is cool. Matthew chapter four, Jesus, Satan comes to tempt Jesus. Um, This is Jesus, this is the Son of God, and how does he respond each time he's tempted? He quotes the Word of God. He doesn't say, hang on, hang on, let me go check the word study on that one and figure out, talk to some people, think about it, pray about it, and then I'll come back to you. He doesn't have time for that. We know when we get tempted, we're blindsided. I mean, just bam. And if we've got God's Word within us, then we can respond God's way. If we don't, we're setting ourselves up. We're setting ourselves up. Memorization guards my mind by making it easier for me to detect error. Between the culture we live in, between the media, between well-meaning friends, error will be coming at us from a regular, regular, uh, at a regular, regular basis from all kinds of sources. Uh, if the truth is within us, we are able to detect it much better. And number six, these are uh, John Piper's words. Memorization gives me the ability to hit Satan in the face. I like that, don't you? Because Satan is a gazillion times more powerful than you are. 
And Satan hates you. And Satan hates your family. And he hates this church. And he hates everybody that we're trying to bring to Christ. He hates them. Tell me, what possible power do you have to go up against him? You're disciplined? You're disciplined? You're going to match for Satan? I'm saying, all right. What is it? The only, the only weapon you have for the battle is the sword. Who would think of going into battle without the sword? Memorization uh, gives us the ability to hit Satan in the face. I like that. Memorization equips me to minister to others. When the phone rings for me, when the phone rings for you, and the phone's going to ring for all of us, we know that. And we're put right in a situation we've got to minister now. Uh, platitudes and stuff will come out. We're trying to do what's right unless we are well immersed in the word of God. And that's what's going to really minister to the person. Not empty religious platitudes, but God's word. Then eight, memorization provides the matrix for my relationship with Christ. God speaks to me through his word. It's not just one of many ways he speaks to us. He speaks to us through his word. And if I'm not listening here, I can never, can't have a relationship with Christ. As I immerse myself with this, as he speaks by his Holy Spirit into my heart and mind, I can speak back through prayer. We have, our relationship grows. The relationship is strengthened. No meditation, no God's word, really no uh, real relationship with the Lord. It's, it's, it's how we grow. Now, one of the texts in here that is so important, we're going to close with this, is Deuteronomy 29.29. It says, the secret things belong to God, but the things revealed belong to his prophets. In other words, what he's saying is, God's saying, sometimes I don't answer all your questions. There's stuff going on. You know, I'm not going to tell you everything. I'm not, I, I, either A, we just can't deal, we can't handle it. Our, our minds are not, such, we're not, we can't grasp these things. Or for whatever reason, trust issues, he just doesn't want to let us know. Do you still trust me? Do you love me? Do you, do you, do you love me? Isn't it wonderful when Jesus said, you know, when you take the, the, the bread is my, is my flesh and the cup is my real blood and all these people walked away and then he looked at his disciples and he says, are you going too? And it's interesting. He could have said, hang on, let me, let, me, let me explain this to you. He just wanted to know, do you really trust me? You might have understood what I just said, but do you trust me? And that's what, that's what Peter said. Where else can we go? He didn't say, oh, we figured it out. The other folk don't know, but we know. He said, we still don't. We don't have a clue either. But you alone have words of eternal life.